From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 148 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just dandy. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. We finally have some sun after a whole lot of rain the last mm. few days and snow in the higher elevations. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, no snow in Florida, believe it or not. Yeah, so it's nice. We need the rain. We need the water and the snow and all that. So, And I don't have to turn on my sprinklers. <laughs> anyway. We, Oh, you know, I was watching... Have you watched Fantasia on Disney Plus yet? I... I want to say I... No, I I don't think I have. I I watched Fantasia 2000. Okay, because, you know, they have their little disclaimer how this is being presented in, in you know, in its original presentation and there might be some things that are outdated. Well, and of course it's not. Because there are things they cut out of it years and, Mm -hmm. well, decades and decades ago. But I don't remember hearing. Now, I was sort of, at one point I had to do a few things up in the kitchen. But I could still see it from the kitchen and hear it. And I did not hear the Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Bach. And in the Nutcracker Suite scene... My favorite scene I did not see, and that's the little mushrooms. Hmm. So, so maybe a listener who's watching is like, maybe I missed these two excerpts, but Takata and Fugue is pretty long. Yeah. And I missed the that completely. But I don't understand. I mean, I wait for the little dancing mushrooms because I think they're adorable. And... I didn't see those, so maybe uh, one of our Connecting with Walt family members out there can confirm that for me. But I don't understand. So I'm thinking I can't be. I must be wrong because I think somebody would have said something. Yeah, I definitely. I, I haven't seen anyone else post about that anywhere since Disney Plus has has come out and people have been binging constantly on it, but. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's really odd. I'm I'm not. Maybe I mean, excuse my ignorance, but I can't even figure out why they would, they why would they would just randomly choose to cut those two parts out. Like it's well, the little mushrooms I could see because it depicts um, stereotypical sort of an Asian, yeah, you know, motif. You know, because they have those. I don't know what they called those hats. I don't. Those hats either. had a name. But, you know, those little straw hat, pointy yeah. straw hats. And um, I think this caught in fugue was probably because it was long. And it, you just watched the instruments and then they became sort of abstract colors. 
and they probably cut it for that because you know today's modern audiences that can't hold their attention and um so I was waiting to see if they cut the soundtrack section for that reason. But no, they kept that in. Hmm. Oh. So, you um, have me intrigued anyway. enough that I'm going to... Uh, I'm definitely going to check it out. If not uh, if not tomorrow, then, then sometime before the end of the weekend. Or the end of the week and in the weekend. Yeah, let me know. Uh, you know, um, I, I might have missed it, but... You know, I could have. I could have missed it very easily. So I'd be interested in knowing that. But speaking of Disney Plus, in June, they have, they've announced their lineup. Did you, have you seen that? I saw that. And according to the first lineups, it appears that two of the uh, specials that went missing from, from, uh, was it April or May? I don't even remember now. I think it was April. It was April. Okay, well, it's it's now back on for for June apparently. So yeah, Man good. in Space and Mars Beyond are back on the lineup, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, the Liberty Story is back. Yeah, um, that's that's a 1957 episode of Disneyland, and it tells the story of Johnny Tremaine, which is on there, um, and Amos the Mouse from Ben and Me, and Walt talks about. His plans for Liberty Street at Disneyland, which would be exciting, which of course never happened. It, ultimately, it morphed into Liberty Square at Walt Disney World, mm-hmm. which is my favorite area of the Magic Kingdom. They have this story of the animated drawing. I didn't see that on there. Yeah, that's on there. And um, Walton El Grupo is on there. That'll be a good one. Yeah, that was Walt and El Grupo. That's been one that I, I want to say, kind of like the Sherman Brothers one. It's been you've been able to find it on there for like since the beginning, but it just had that little disclaimer like streaming coming in June or July or whenever it said it it was. But yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to that so i was i was really keeping my fingers crossed for johnny tremaine considering you know we're coming up on on the the right time of the year for that and to launch it in june would make more sense to me than to launch it in july just because you know once people people might not have time in at the beginning of july to watch it and once once Hamilton starts streaming on July third, everyone's going to be yeah. watching that constantly. So I, I I wish it would have been added to June, but I'll keep my fingers crossed for July. Yeah, I was surprised they moved up Hamilton like that. It made sense though because with with Hamilton, they already have it finished. It's not like it, it's not like Disney bought the the rights to to an unmade movie that that wasn't done i mean it's it's been finished and edited so uh, they paid whatever 75 million for it so they could have they've could have waited for it in in 2021 to put in in theaters like was the original plan mm-hmm. or or just launch it now and or as soon as possible and i think it was honestly the right move um it's especially knowing knowing that theater is going to take even longer to come back from from all of this uh it's it's scary i mean we already saw our first uh casualty in the disney theater lineup 
during all of this when they announced that Frozen on Broadway will not be returning because of of yeah. the shutdown. So it's a little theater out there that's not Andrew Lloyd Webber films streaming on YouTube would, would be good for the world. <laughs> yeah, well, he's done with those. I, I think I've I've learned from watching those he had more misses than hits. <laughs> Old Andrew. <Yep. laughs> and, uh, but I still, you know, but it wasn't going to go into theaters back to Hamilton until 2021. You think theaters would have been really bouncing back by then? Because you think Disney would make more money having a theatrical release of it. So that's what surprised me. Cause, and, you know, our theaters hit one theater chain. I don't know if it's big out there, but Cinemark. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had, they have the Century Theaters. It's big out here. We don't really have AMC in the Sacramento area, but we have Cinemark and Regal. Those are the real big ones. And um, Cinemark's already announced their opening midsummer. We don't know what that means. Hmm. But yeah, it's. Anyway, we haven't heard anything from Regal yet. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that Hamilton would have made a ton of money if it would have been released in in theaters. But ultimately, it just it, it comes down to right now. Disney has basically moved half of the lineup uh, that they had going for this summer and beyond into 2021 with stuff like the Jungle Cruise. So uh, they're they're starting oh, to fill true. up. 2020 probably don't have the space anymore exactly so mm-hmm. I, I i so yeah i'm okay I, I would have loved to seen it in the theater experience like i'm lucky enough that i got to see it actually when it came around to orlando but i i would have loved to seen it in a theater with actual awesome theater sound but uh, at this point now i'm happy for it to come on disney plus i hope it becomes a a, a uh, stay or not a stand I almost said a stay at home a standalone release like if I can buy it on Blu-ray as well too I would be more than happy to give Disney the extra $20 uh, since since I'm already since I already paid for my my Disney Plus for for a while you know it's not like it's not like they're getting any new money out of me so if I can give them new money in another way I'm more than happy to but let's see what happens with all of it yeah yeah so, and if they're releasing another film direct to uh, Disney Plus, Artemis Fowl, which I know nothing about. But all the scuttlebutt was they didn't think it was going to do well in theaters. So people are feeling this is a good move yeah. on Disney's part. Yeah, it, it probably, I, I don't want to say that it wouldn't have, but, you know, with when they, when any studio seems to adapt young adult novels it's either going to hit like a hunger games or it's going to pretty much flounder and and you know i'm glad that disney saw saw some saw a good story there good enough to be able to to have the the notion to even make a movie out of it but everything with it was just bizarre because it was already supposed to be released early early on not even uh i can't remember the original release date but then it got pushed back and then with all of this then they're like okay direct to disney plus because part of it they feel is the audience that 
is subscribed to Disney Plus and watching it falls right in that range for the people who would have seen Artemis Fowl. So uh, I can I can understand it. So I don't I don't know what the actual budget on it was, but there's there is a decent chance that it it would have operated at a loss had they they had it in theaters and mm-hmm. if they would have really pushed like a big marketing campaign leading up to it so that's the the one benefit of disney plus is you don't have to go with all the tv spots constantly like i'm sure they'll they'll play some leading up to it just to to make sure they 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 get the word out there that it's on there but not not like a theatrical release that's that's on a much more expensive scale yeah yeah so yeah, because they don't have to um, have the big budget for marketing and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, and oh, there's a new series, uh, Into the Unknown, making a Frozen Two, yeah, is premiering. So which I'm, I'll be interested in in watching that. I hope they're not all sitting around a table talking. I, the Mandalorian. I'm really struggling to keep my interest going in the making of of that one. The, the the last last weeks where they were talking about casting, I thought, oh no! I mean, it, it was it just I found it boring. Hmm. So um, I I haven't watched it I, yet. I'm going to hang in there with it. Yeah, so. I haven't watched the, this last ones yet. I, I I've just been too busy. But Frozen yeah. intrigues me. But they also they didn't go all out on their Blu-ray. Uh, actually a, a pretty pretty weak lineup of special features on the blu-ray for frozen 2 so uh it doesn't leave me with a lot of hopes that it's going to be more than like a roundtable discussion but honestly that's that would still be a little bit more than what was on the blu-ray so yeah. it might not be as interesting but it's it, it could end up being more than what was on their official release that that people paid for so we'll let's we'll see how yeah. it turns out yeah, we'll see. The, there was a, a woman who was the um, she was the dress designer for Frozen Two, and she was fascinating to talk to. She did a lot of the clothes designs for the princesses, and um, for and and for some of the male characters as well. And it was she. It was really interesting all that went into it, and what and what she had to do. And I didn't think I was going to find it that interesting. And I had no idea. Oh, um, I didn't even know it was out. I thought it was. I thought I saw it on the lineup for it to be coming out in June. Well, she spoke at the Walt Disney Family Museum. It was a talk that she this woman did, and I thought, okay, that would make a she would make a great episode in Mm. this if they if it were things like that. Is that I had no idea they had clothing designers. I mean, real clothing designers. Yeah. You know, for their films, I mean, it was fascinating, and everything that went into it—the choosing of the colors and all that. So, wow. Anyway, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Tarzan is being released, which is cool. And um, anyway, so is there anything else you're looking forward to? Wait, it's coming you, out? You said in Tarzan's being released? Yeah, yeah. Tarzan is coming. They're they're releasing that on Disney Plus in June. Is the animated version not on there already? Uh, apparently not. Oh. It was on the list. Oh, it's, I guess I've looked over it. It's not one of my favorites, so mm. I I probably would not have seeked it out anyways. But hmm. 
I like it. I, I want to watch it only because I've heard Glenn Keane talk about it so much at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Mm-hmm. I like Tarzan was based on his son, who, you know, wrote, was into skateboarding. I think his son was like 16 at the time. Yeah. And that's where he got the idea for, you know, Tarzan and how he moves through the trees and stuff like that. So, anyway. Alrighty, yeah, and then of course we already talked about Disney Galley. The Mandalorian is continuing, and One Day at Disney is continuing. So, is there anything else you're looking forward to in June? Nah, you you pretty much uh, you you knocked out my entire list there of of everything oh, okay. that I'm oh, looking no, forward I, to. I would have thought Muppet Babies would have been on your list. I I'm not wild about the new Muppet Baby series that they did. Probably because okay. when I was growing up, Muppet Babies was my favorite show uh you know it did a perfect job of blending the the animation with all of the movies that are now important to me in my life and also that little bit of muppet humor in there so i'm a huge fan of original muppet babies but i'm not i'm not wild about the new version but then again i'm also not the target audience i'm not a toddler so that makes sense too yeah yeah so yeah, I'd never watched it. I was too old by that time. Um, I always thought it was odd that they were animating the Muppets, but anyway. Oh, it's good. Uh, but oh, and um, yeah, and oh, and the Walt Disney Family Museum is apparently reopening in July. At least that's what they say. And uh, and so so July might be the magic month out here in California, yeah. where museums and other things, big things, are going to reopen. I so it, have to keep our eye out on that. Yeah, that'd be that'd be nice. I mean, especially for you up in in northern, unfortunately, and in, in southern California specifically, you know, Los Angeles and Hollywood. It feels like it feels like they're not making any real steps forward. I mean, not, I, I shouldn't even say it in that way because obviously they're trying to. Everyone everyone wants to get back on with their lives, but. It just just from the news that makes it onto this coast, it's that Los Angeles is being extra, extra uh, safe about the decisions they're making. So uh, that's uh, be interested to see what ends up happening with it. But, yeah, I only I, I, I see the news that actually travels. The governor gets a lot of he's getting a lot of pushback right now from counties and mayors because some of the counties they've not some of them have not seen one case Hmm. and they're saying why are we being treated the same as the urban areas so um, you know like here uh, we're in Sacramento County well if I go to the next exit they're in a different county they've they've been reopening so I can go one exit up and go to a restaurant if I want to but I can't in my town. Hmm. So um, so there's a lot of controversy over that. So, Understandably. Yeah. But anyway, so, so like my town is trying to get exemptions that we're not being treated like the, so that we don't get be treated like the urban areas of, Sac- yeah. like, of Sacramento because we're not urban. So anyway, but we'll see. It looks like the governor is... Um, reassessing and all that because I guess um, restaurants and all that are, uh, he said are going to can reopen now nice and all that so yeah so let's, let's we'll keep our fingers crossed and we hope 
as always, that everybody else is out there is safe and doing well and all that. So exactly. Just a reminder, if you haven't watched it yet, um, you know, Storytime with Michael, a new project that, that we've launched. Uh, we have two stories out there now. One is a, a story about Mary Blair. And another one is Walt Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I talk a little about, I'll talk about the background of the book or the history of it with Walt Disney or the Walt Disney Studio. And uh, this week, uh, we'll be releasing um, the book probably too early to say what day it'll go out because there's so mm-hmm. many variables. But it ha- it's about the legend of Disney. There's, it's a legendary story of Disneyland that goes back to before Disneyland was even built. But, but I don't know, Craig, if you've dug it up yet, but we have photographic evidence yes. of this story that, um, that hopefully you know, Craig will include you know, as part of the story time. Yes, I uh, was skimming back through all my video from uh, from previous trips, and it's it's as if I never even saw it there, and it just it finally appeared in front of my eyes, right in front of me. So you'll definitely be able to see it. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, so whenever they, so keep your eyes on our our you know our the Diz unplugged, and you'll see that drop into the feed at some point. So and listen to the, that that famous Disneyland legend. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we have been answering your questions that you submitted to us about the Disney theme parks and resorts and about the studio and films and Imagineering. And we've been doing it through the magic of video for for those of you who have been enjoying watching and seeing what we look like and what our, our studios look like. And this week there were so many questions and we had such lengthy discussions that for the first time we have a third episode for our Q&A. So this week we are going to start with the Walt Disney Company and this will be the final week of answering your questions. So we're in the Walt Disney Company category and the last two weeks Craig chose the first question so I'm going to choose the first one this time. For Craig to start with, and Emily Phillips Eels asked, "How much do you think marketing is influencing both the parks and movies from a creativity aspect?" Hmm. This is uh, oh, this it's a tough question because we we've talked a lot about about this this. I'm sorry. I'm I'm trying to think of the right words in all this. That we we have talked about how we 100% believe that you know in terms of attractions, new attractions, that everything is going to be based off of something that's that's grounded in a surefire uh, intellectual property, something that they know they can can really hit a home run with. And I think so. I, I obviously think that in the theme park world that the marketing aspect is very it's very very integral to it from uh i think i said integral there because my brain is not working at all right now integral anyways so with the theme park attractions and, and such 
they they really they they need solid ground to work on because from there it doesn't even just mean the attraction it's you also have to look at the gift shop at the end of the attraction you have to look at the merchandise you have to look at what they can start merging in with the entire park overall is is the you know it's what's changed like when they changed hollywood studios to the entire branding on that which is now having star wars in the logo having the muppets in the logo something that's just that didn't seem like a possibility maybe years and years ago but now is something that's really really taken into consideration so so i think in theme parks uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely thought about with every single thing that they they do but from the the other side of this looking in terms of um looking in terms of how marketing is influencing movies i don't know if i necessarily think that that i don't think that that's as big of an impact you know some some things are definitely done hoping that they can generate big returns like frozen 2 for example that's the first movie was such a, a juggernaut that you expect the second one to be the same, and you know it it was. But at the same time, when you hear the filmmakers on these on these movies talk about it, when you hear J.J. Abrams talk about Rise of Skywalker, and when you hear Pete Docter talking about the movies they're working on at Pixar, it's all it's not about marketing for them they're making the movies that they feel like they have a story that they want to tell and i i want to believe that that is the case right now with the movies that it's not there's not someone pulling in saying how can we merchandise this how can we turn it into theme parks how can we can we take it beyond i want to believe that their creativity isn't being stifled and i i think that is the case but theme parks i i completely think 1000% that marketing is the biggest impact on that in terms of what projects to move forward and such. But what do you think, Michael? Well, what do you think about um, in terms of films, the remakes that they're doing? They're the live action, although, you know, for some of them, like Lion King, they're just a different form of animation. Those, because they already have the built-in audience, like you know, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, they've announced they're doing Hercules. Um, there's a few other rumors flying around. You know, they did Cinderella, Maleficent, um, things like that. I mean, that feels to me like marketing is involved in that because they already know there's a certain, that they're going to make their money back on those. Yeah, and then some I, because people love the animated films. I I can see that to a point. I think in some regards they they have that feeling, but in the same way too, like when you know with, with John Favreau, for example, at this point, any movie that he wants to make with Disney, he's going to be allowed to for the rest of his life without many questions asked so like if he decide he did jungle book he did lion king if he decides he wants to do another disney animated film remake they're not going to say no to him so even still in that regards it's not 
if he's if he's the one approaching Disney saying he wants to do it, then then I feel like that's also that that doesn't really apply into this category. And you know, if Dumbo might have done better, and Tim Burton kind of yeah. struck it out of the park two two for two, first one with the first Alice, and then then Dumbo, then he'd probably also be in that category of never having to ask to make a movie with Disney that he'd just be allowed to make whatever he wants to. So I, I think there, I, I would have no doubts that something like lady and the tramp, that was not, that was not a filmmaker that, uh, came to them saying, we really need to reimagine lady and the tramp. But I think, I think with some of these, these Disney, uh, retellings, I, I have a feeling that some of them are, are definitely driven by the people who want to make them and make creative movies and not necessarily the marketing. And Ethan, you know, maybe maybe even going back with at some point in time for like something like Pete's Dragon, maybe there was a story that circulated or an idea that was very similar to what that movie ended up being. And they're like, well, yeah, in this case, we can make it Pete's Dragon and throw it into this category. I think maybe, I think maybe that would probably happen and that would that would prove you right in terms of marketing on those movies but i i want to believe that some of them are done are done with the thought with the intention that the filmmakers themselves are going to be able to be creative and and tell the story they want to do without without feeling the need for guaranteed success aladdin yeah aladdin's all marketing though that was 100 percent marketing <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if like John Favreau felt compelled to make The Lion King or if the studio felt okay, we're going to remake this because this is a huge hit and and then they went to him and then and then they find uh, the the director who they think can pull it off and they approach them. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, I it's I I don't know enough about it too. That's just I'm I and I know I know John Favreau mentioned something about the Lion King the first time we were at the expo and they showed us the footage, the first test footage. But maybe that's just my mind erasing back to me saying that he took the idea to them to move it on with the Lion King now. But I don't I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure he did. I don't know, but I'm not. I don't know. You're just more pessimistic than I am. I just can't help, but I am. (laughs) In terms of those remakes, I absolutely am. (laughs) So I just don't think they need to be made. But they make money for them, so we're going to see a whole lot more. Yeah, and until they stop. (laughs) Alrighty. But. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I believe it's my turn to ask you a question, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask one that uh, my friend Don sent in. And that's, can you give some more background about the pre-Eisner era? Just how bad yeah, off the company and, uh, was, and how did Eisner turn things around? Okay, yeah, we got into this a lot in this, my 60 Years of Disneyland series. Basically, there's a common belief that Ron Miller provided poor leadership and lacked vision. However, during his tenure, the Walt Disney Home Entertainment Division released its first videos in 1980. Also in 1980, Disney had its first co-produced film with Paramount, Popeye, uh, which 
uh, now I haven't seen it since 1980, but I I remember enjoying it. Shelley Duvall was the perfect olive oil. Um, the Disney Channel was announced in 1981. Epcot Center opened in 1982. Tokyo Disneyland in 1983. In 1983, Ron Miller created Silver Screen Partners, and that was created to produce financing and ownership for Walt Disney Pictures and, and Touchstone. And in 1984, Ron Miller launched Touchstone Films, which would allow Disney to create films targeted to a more adult audience. So the stage was set to turn around the studio's poor performance. The first two Touchstone films, Splash and Country, were financially successful, but Michael Eisner would go on to take full credit for the success of Touchstone, even though their success was due to Ron Miller. In 1983, Disney produced its first Broadway show, Total Abandon, starring Richard Dreyfuss. And Ron also hired Tim Burton and encouraged him to develop his own style of art and animation. Um, Ron went against the advice of company executives, including Card Walker, and acquired the rights and put into development the book Who Censored Roger Rabbit? Ron Miller also initiated Disney's animation's first attempts at computer animation. And although it had been widely reported that the company was financially hemorrhaging, that wasn't true. Uh, Three months before Ron Miller's resignation, Disney reported all-time record profits that had doubled over the previous year. Revenues for the quarter ended June 30, 1984, rose 35% to $483 million from $358 million, whilst profits rose 112% to $45 million from $21 million compared to the same period the previous year. Just one month before he left the Disney company in 1984, Ron Miller said, I think my greatest responsibility is to challenge the creative people in this organization to come up with new things we've never even considered. I hope that in 1980 we will be doing something that people never thought Disney could do. This company's going forward, and I'm very proud and pleased to be a part of it. He um, also... What, he's also responsible for contacting George Lucas to uh, to create uh, you know um, attractions for the theme parks, and George Lucas retells the story of how when he they, they went to um, their winery and how it, you know you know Ron took them out in a jeep on the tour of the winery, and you know Ron and, and Diane Disney Miller served them lunch and. George just thought this was so surreal that Walt Disney's daughter, you know, was there serving them lunch and all that. So, but um, storm clouds formed, though, over Disney Productions because there was a hostile takeover attempt um, led by Saul Steinberg, and he almost succeeded in gaining control of the company. And this is where things started to go bad. Um, at first, Disney tried to increase its corporate debt to become less of an attractive purchase by buying a Florida real estate firm and the nation's third largest greeting card manufacturer, Gibson, for a total of more than $600 million in stock. Um, 
Steinberg fought back with financial help from MGM United Artists owner Kirk Corian, who together threatened to carve up the Disney company into separate fiefdoms consisting of the company's valuable film library of animated and live action films, which is what they were really after. And then the Burbank Film Studio, the theme parks, and undeveloped Florida real estate. Um, Disney's management, criticized by rank-and-file stockholders for trying to hold on to their jobs, bought Steinberg off for $300 million, which included a profit of $30 million for the New York multimillionaire. A suit to stop the the payoff was filed. Another suit brought by a major stockholder, Erwin Jacobs, to stop the acquisition of Gibson greeting cards was dropped when Disney agreed to cancel the deal. The chairman of Cincinnati-based Gibson then threatened to sue Disney. Erwin Jacobs, a Minneapolis investor and a consort with several other financiers, began buying up stock amid rumors that he planned a lucrative green mail raid similar to Steinberg's. And this was going on in all kinds of companies um, in the 1980s. Disney was just one target um, at this time. So um, Roy Disney, who of course is a nephew of Walt Disney, and his father was Roy O. Disney, he once worked under Ron Miller in the 1970s as a producer of the nature films for the Disney commercial television program. And he owned about 4% of the company's share of stocks. He resigned from the board of directors in March 1984, and he launched his first Save Disney campaign with the intention to force... Ron Miller out and install a new president and CEO. So then Roy E. Disney rejoined the board as vice chairman on June 22nd and was joined on the board by two allies, Stanley P. Gold and Peter Daly. And the three had opposed Disney's bid for Gibson greetings, as did another new director, Charles E. Cobb Jr., who was chairman of the Arvita Corporation and a representative of the Bass family. Back in the 80s, these folks were all notorious. And one of the first items on their agenda was the removal of Ron Miller as president and CEO of Walt Disney Productions. So the Bass family, which owned 70% of Arvita, which was a Florida resort and land development company, acquired 5.5% of Disney shares when Disney acquired Arvita for $225 million of stock as part of its defense against Saul Steinberg. After a tumultuous six months of fending off attempted the attempted takeover um Ron Miller ended his 18-month tenure as president and chief executive officer of Walt Disney Productions on September 7, 1984, by offering his resignation. But this was under pressure from the company's directors, and his resignation was unanimously accepted by the board of directors. And he never recovered from this emotionally. Um, He saw it as a betrayal, which he said to the board. And he never returned. The first time he went back to a Disney theme park was for Disneyland's 60th anniversary. And by that time, uh, Diane had passed away. And he felt that 
Diane should be represented at the anniversary of Disneyland, and that's why he was there for that. So that's uh, that. That's what went on, Don. And uh, you know, over the years, people I think have painted a very negative picture of Ron Miller, but and and I think that Michael Eisner took a lot of credit for what uh, Ron Miller did and and of what he started. You know, Ron Miller completely took credit for the relationship with George Lucas when that was started way back when that first meeting at Silverado Winery and, um, you know, and for Touchstone and all that, which again, Ron Miller, you know, they created the first two Touchstone films under his tenure. So, you know, I always felt bad that Ron never um, told his own story. He was a very humble man, and I always hoped they would have a Ron Miller day at the Walt Disney Family Museum, and he never would do it. And um, so I'm hoping someday the the real story will be told. You know, we, we try to do it on Connecting with Walt. But that's the story of what happened. It's a good story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it didn't turn out well for Ron, Ron but... Um, Yes, interesting story. And of course, the second Save Disney campaign that Roy Disney um, instigated was ironically to force the ouster, ouster, however you say it, of Michael Eisner. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes what goes around comes around. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder, I probably threw it away, but I know somewhere I have a Save Disney uh, sticker that they would send you in the mail if you, uh-huh. you signed up for like their mailing list or something. So I, I think I still have it in my box of random stuff from my childhood. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's my, um, my turn. Yes. Let's see. Hmm. I don't know. Let's see. Um, there's there's a couple. I, I don't know if there's anything else in the Walt Disney Company one. Um, a, a lot of it's speculation. Exactly. The rest of them. I'm okay so, moving on. Let's see. Okay. Under books. There's a lot under books, but a lot of them we can sort of, I think, answer... A lot of them we can answer together. You know, I mean, we can lump some of them together. Um, well, I know you read a lot of Disney books too. You have a lot, of, you have a number of them in your collection, and so maybe we can answer this one together. Um, Edwin Lyons, greetings. I asked the same question back in November. It was not selected, but I'm excited for your thoughts. So, asking again. As a lifelong fan of all things Disney and a two-year listener of Connecting with Walt, my question is as follows. For someone wanting to create a library collection covering the life and times of all things Disney, what are the top five or ten books every collector should have? I currently already own Walt Disney and American Original by author Bob Thomas. Good. And Walt Disney's Disneyland by author Charles Nichols. I have not read that one. Um... So I can't vouch for that. In advance, thank you kindly for considering my questions for your show. Very best wishes to you. So, Craig, are there any in your collection that you feel Edwin should have? I I mean, I would say right off the bat, you 
cannot talk about Disney books and not talk about the two Imagineering books. Uh, those are, mm-hmm. you know, they, agree. they're coffee table books, but they are they are essential, especially the first version. Um, I, you know, I for me, I was I was still young when that came out, a youngish. So that was actually the book that really spurned on me buying Disney books, whereas I mean, you would have been collecting for years and years and years at that point, so Oh, yeah. Um, so you you had a leg up on me, but that was the first book that really um, that really jumped out to me that is was a must-own um, in terms in terms of the, the parks especially, so because uh, it just that, that book is so, so well done um and then I'm, I'm going to let you make a choice while I, I think of two more. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I have I have a lot in my collection that I've been collecting for a long time. So this is sort of hard. I'll start out with one. Walt Disney's Nine Old Men by John Canemaker. It's really good. It, it's very in-depth. Uh, anything by John Canemaker that he's written is a good addition to your library. He's an excellent historian. His research is top-notch. And knowing the story of Walt Disney's Nine Old Men is critical to really understanding Disney animation. So, So I heartily recommend that. Now, unfortunately, because I have been collecting for a long time, I cannot guarantee that the books on my list are readily available yeah so some of these you might have to save up for if you can find them yeah it's and you know there's there's lots of good uh there's lots of good book sites out there where you can find it like don't necessarily don't necessarily go direct with always amazon or or ebay i know Mm -hmm. that those are the two places but i've always with used books i've always had my best luck uh on a books a b e books uh i've ordered lots Mm -hmm. of uh out of print stuff or even like if it's a book that i know was printed in another country and didn't make it over here uh, i've been able to get really good copies of it for a very very fair price so Mm -hmm. uh, i would recommend that when looking for for books another one uh, absolutely has to be mentioned is the designing disney uh, John Hench's book. Uh, that's that's on my list. Yeah, yeah. it's. I I absolutely agree with you. Sorry, I I was I took a really long pause in there and let you I had an opportunity where you probably thought I was done talking there for a second, but um, mm-hmm. I don't I I don't think I truly understood that what went into making. Like especially with the colors in the parks, that was like the one, the one aspect of it. When I read that in that book, that blew me away. I mean, because when I first got this book, that was before, you know, that was before the internet was the size it is now, and that information wasn't reposted by fan sites. And and the only way to know that for like me at that time was by picking up this book and reading it. So it's. It's beautiful if you want it as a picture uh, picture book. It's beautiful if you actually read the text that goes along with it too, and and learn more. But it's one that I 
I would be so sad if anything ever happened to my copy of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, the full title is Designing Disney Imagineering in the Art of the Show. And like Craig said, you don't appreciate what goes into designing a Disney theme park until you read this book. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing. I had no idea how many different shades of white there are yeah. until I read this book. And um, and that, you know, what what looks good in one park, the color palette for like, let's say the castle, won't work in any other park. So, uh, so it's really interesting. Yeah. So, uh, it, I mean, it's absolutely, it, it's a fascinating book. If you don't have it, you will really like it. So, uh, another book on my list is, again, going back to animation, Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life by Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas. This is when they retired, they wrote this book. And it, it is one of the Bibles of animation. And just and the Disney style of animation. Mm-hmm. And it go, it's from the beginning all the way to, you know, how, how you start to, you know, the finished product. And then they have their stories, you know, all along the way. And, and these are two people that, you know, I, I wish I could have been in a room with them together and just listened to them talk, <laughs> you know. And um, it, 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 anyway, this is a beautiful book. And the, it gets reprinted every so often. So I think you'll have a good chance of finding this book hmm. at a reasonable price. So, hmm. So do you have any others? Um, I, I mean, of course, like many other people out there, I'd, I'd probably recommend Disney war. Um, it's, it's solid. Mm -hmm. I don't, it's, it's a story that, uh, I feel like more and more people know about as time goes on, but it's still, it's still worth a read. Um, I will answer one, I will say one that's on my bucket list of books that I know you own, but I, I don't. And that is the, uh, the Disneyland, the nickel tour. That's a book that I want to get my hands on oh, more than any other one. That is a treasure. If you can find that one, because, um, it's, it's not inexpensive. Yeah. So, um, there were two versions. I have the reprint, um, but, I'm thrilled to have that book. It's a gorgeous book. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's told through the postcards, which is great. Yeah. History of the postcards. So, um, another very good one if you're interested in theme parks for Disney, the Disneyland story by Sam Genoway. And he goes into detail from when Disney started his company on. Uh, about what went, everything that led Walt to creating Disneyland, all the the trials and tribulations he went through, the creativity, the little behind-the-scenes stories that went on, uh, you know, how he created WED, and then all the the early Imagineers and what went into creating the park. And it it goes up almost to present day, because the book was written a few years ago. But it's a fascinating, fascinating book. So, and, and a really easy read, really good read. Yeah. I also... Um, Anything? Th- sorry. Go on. No, go ahead. I was going to ask if you had any others. I was going to say, uh, just as 
kind of an honorable mention uh, of it. I was going to mention some of the Sorel books that came out in the in the 2000s. Those were uh, those they're decent books. So uh, I know they still they still print the uh, the Haunted Mansion book. I still see that in mm-hmm. in Disney parks the from the Magic Kingdom to the movies. But Jason Sorel mm-hmm. also did uh, a pirates of the caribbean version of that from from the magic kingdom to the movies he also did uh, a disney mountains book that i mm-hmm. i enjoyed so it was it, it was at a time where the disney was making a lot of these books that they were they were a nice solid read you know 200 ish pages and they were good full color big spreads lots of beautiful and images update one of them the haunted mansion was the one that got got the update on there but i i love these because they were all really affordable too i mean they were like i want to say they were no more than like 25 dollars at disney and you could usually get them on you know get them through a bookstore for about like 20 dollars so they were really really a fair deal for for what you were getting out of them and and yeah i think i i know for sure haunted mansion still available the other ones i believe you have to you have to get used copies of them, but uh, they're they're worth picking up. They're nice little coffee table books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're very well done. And finally, I'm going to recommend a, a DVD or Blu-ray, whichever version you prefer for your collection. Um, Walt, the man behind the myth. It, it plays on television every so often. I would imagine someday it'll be on Disney Plus. I don't know, um, but this was produced by the Walt Disney Family Foundation, and this was the precursor to the Walt Disney Family Museum. This is Walt telling his story in his own words, and it has video and footage from Walt's family. You know, from the archives. It also has the people who worked directly with Walt telling the stories of Walt and the studio and the history and his legacy. It is excellent. Much better than the um, documentary that was on PBS's American Experience a couple Mm -hmm. years ago. So I would... And this is easily available. Yeah. It's at the Walt Disney Family Museum, but it's available online too so um definitely add that to your collection yeah and i uh i I do want to mention one more too that uh it's also a plug to throw back to to our archives i kind of forgot about it and all this despite the fact that i take it out pretty often but eat like walt is just a really a really nice book so Mm -hmm. i uh it's i i really really recommend it so it's it's it, not even for the recipes and such that are inside. Kind of like when, when we talked about it on the show. It's just it's it's a it's a nice surprise. It's a nice tribute to Walt. I think overall. Oh, it is. Well, she tells the history of Walt and the parks through um, also through the menus, through the food, mm-hmm. and all that. So um, it's great. It's a whole different side of history that you don't. Um, you don't necessarily see. Although a lot of the stories, if you listen to, you you may have heard a lot of them on, on our Legacy Disneyland series and on this show, but it's a great book. And uh, I've made some of the recipes from it. And it's, um, it, yeah, it's terrific. So, 
Very anyway, she did her research for those recipes. Exactly. Okay, Craig, what about you now? Okay, now my question. I, I mean, the bad part about that question, I'm glad we could finally answer it for Edwin, but uh, we uh, we 100% like we covered every single <laughs> book question pretty much in that category. Yeah. Well, Paul Ashley's has, do you have any, he said, are there any books that we wouldn't recommend? Oh. Because... Yeah, because Paul, he wants to know, you know, which ones would I would I recommend? Would we recommend on Walt? And of course, we we always recommend Walt Disney, the American Original by Bob Thomas. Bob Thomas was the only one that had access to the family and to the archives, and it's an unvarnished um, story of Walt. And if you get one of the earlier books, they don't mention Sharon's um, adoption. Mm-hmm. And that was due to the and and it, so people criticize that oh well the book is you know whitewashed and all that that was due to that was at the request of the family um, it wasn't they wanted the immediate family to have passed before it was made public that Sharon was adopted because Walt and Lillian never said a word and they wanted Sharon treated as their daughter not as their adopted daughter and so um, it was with the passing of Diane that the book was updated to mention that Sharon was adopted yeah that's uh, I mean it kind of plays into what's happening right now so where where this is in the context of the world the the Michael Jordan documentary is out right now at this Mm -hmm. current point in time and I, I didn't even really think about this as it's been blowing up, but another podcast that I love was kind of talking about documentaries and saying that, like, especially with the, the Michael Jordan one right now, that is it slightly tarnished because essentially Michael <clears throat> Jordan has his hand in the making of this. So at the one aspect, you get you get this story being told like it wouldn't without his involvement, but at the same time, he also being involved can not necessarily change facts, but he can choose to have facts omitted on him. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it's being praised by everyone who watches it, and it's it's really really good. So it, so I think going back to the point on what you were saying, it's not just because stuff is omitted sometimes it doesn't mean that the rest of it isn't perfect i would rather have Mm -hmm. omissions in in a book that i'm reading rather than someone uh you know create create a storyline that doesn't truly exist i there's three i don't recommend um one people are going to be shocked by because they this has been heralded as the authoritative book on Walt and that's Walt Disney The Triumph of the American Imagination by Neil Gabler Um, he makes he does something that I don't care for in biographies he just has too much speculation Mm -hmm. he does too much of the what was Walt thinking and uh, and I don't care for that and because he there's nothing to back it up Mm -hmm. he also um I know Diane didn't care for it because of things that he said about the family in there that were not true. And she um, was very upset that it was carried in the theme parks and told Bob Iger as much. Um, The Disney version by Richard Schickel, 
I th- th- that has pretty much been um, debunked by most historians and Walt Disney um, Hollywood's Dark Prince by Mark Elliott mm-hmm. I, I do not recommend that one either that, uh, there is just so many untruths in that one that it, it's ridiculous so um, I would anyway uh, one one other thing I would just say I'm not going to name any titles offhand but I would say with you know printing books has become very very easy as long as you have the uh you have the the motivation to write the book and there are plenty of places out there now who will help self-publish books so there i there's been a couple cases where i've picked up a book and i've started reading information from it but it's not it's information that's already been out there i know that it's the research has been done by other people and it hasn't been cited and so I would say kind of keep an eye out on that too. Maybe if you can, if you can pick up a physical book and like kind of skim through it, that's always a good recommendation. So uh, you, you know that you're, you're getting something of quality in, in regards to that too. But I've been just, I've noticed it maybe two or three times over the past couple of years where I've I've gone through a book and I'm like, there's no new information on here, and mm-hmm. at the same time, some of these stories are anecdotes told by other authors and other historians, but there's no there's no leading back to where they got that information from. So it's like some circumstances, it's almost it's bordering on just like plain <laughs> copyright infringement, mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, you know. Okay did we did we want to list any more for Spencer? Right, asked, you know, we did a 101 show on Disney books in January 27, 2017. That's very helpful to myself and others. Since that time, are there any Disney related books which have come out that you care to recommend and you might advise against? Do you have anything to add that we haven't already brought up? I don't remember what we said in the January 2017 show. Probably a lot of the basics. Yeah, I nothing, uh, nothing really to. Mm-hmm to kind of go above and beyond the only thing that i still i haven't added to my collection that is something that i really want to do the uh the mark davis book that came yeah, out that's a on my list back. that it's, i would have recommended yeah, yeah mark davis in his own words imagineering the disney theme parks by pete doctor and christopher Merritt. these are huge heavy and expensive but yes. they're excellent yeah that's so. that's what's holding me back right now on it is the expensive part of it I'm okay yeah. with the huge and heavy, but the expensive is mm-hmm. is uh, is one that uh, I have to wait till I have enough gift cards saved up. Yeah, yeah. Um, a few I would recommend um, the Waltz People series by Didier Gez. Um, th- there's, I think he's up to twenty four now. I'm way behind. I think I'm only up to chapter book seventeen or something, but. Um, he has compiled interviews of people that were, some are Walt Disney's families, and then most are people who have worked with Walt. They're interviews he's done or ones that he has gathered um, that were done by other people, and also articles. And what's nice is, you know, you can either go hunting around for these because some go way back decades and decades and decades but it's nice to sort of have them in this series of books and I think he has online an index for them which would be very helpful because otherwise you have no idea 
what's in each book. There's no rhyme or reason really to them. It's as he finds enough interviews and articles, he publishes another edition. Mm-hmm. And it's very well done. It's fascinating. Really good. Everything he does is very good. In fact, there's a, there's a couple of things on here by him in my list. Um, he's done another series, and I think he's about to publish or release the final series in it. He's done a number of them. The series is called They Drew As They Please, The Hidden Art of Disney, and he goes through it by decade. These are coffee table books, and he, he basically does the history of Disney animation by decade. And they're beautiful books, and again, very well done. So, um, anyway, and let's see some. A Jeff Curdy's Christmas card book. If you want something to read at Christmas, from all of us to all of you, the Disney Christmas card book. It's beautiful, fascinating, a fascinating read on this, uh, this little, um, you know, tradition that Walt Disney started, that the company kept going up until almost present day. They might still be doing it. Uh, the Tashin books, if you if you have the money for them, Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse, and the Walt Disney Film Archives books are both really well done. And one I'm reading now, I am loving. It's fascinating. It's a fairly new book, The Queens of Animation, the untold story of the women women who transformed the world of Disney and made cinematic history by Nathalia Holt. This is a great read. I I like her style, but she's talking about the women who rose up through the ranks because, you know, Walt, um, you know, Walt hired people or he would put women in positions based on their talent at a time when women just didn't rise through the ranks Mm -hmm. of any company, but, but especially in, you know, film studios. And, you know, there, there, there was a woman that was, um, you know, heading a a film division, you know, in the, in the thirties at the Walt Disney company that was unheard of. She ended up, of course, becoming, um, Walt's, you know, sister-in-law and, um, but anyway, but, um, it's it's excellent excellent book i'm up to fantasia now and how involved women were in choosing the music for fantasia and the working on the storyboards for it and and all that and working alongside the men and uh, which again that was groundbreaking so a really good book that i highly recommend so the queens of animation yeah so, anyway. And Richard Top, I think we've answered your question in all of this. What are your top three non-Walt Disney, Roy Disney um, biographies? Yeah. There is a whole lot we've given you here. <laughs> yeah. And one day we'll be able to give you more. They just need to start releasing yeah. more books. <laughs> in, in a couple, which they are. Yeah. Boy, this has been, this is the era for Disney books. There's a lot coming out. Yeah, it's, I need new bookshelves that's i I need a bell style (laughs) library at this point if i'm ever going to uh, be able to have all the ones that i want oh that's funny well did you see any from uh, we we covered all the books did you see any from the last uh grouping of questions there's nothing really that caught my eye 
No, oh, there's the one on the the carousel at Griffith Park. Um, Robin Ruziska wanted to know if there was a Detroit or Michigan connection to the carousel. Robin, I have not been able to find that connection. Um, you know, the carousel was originally built for the Spreckles family, and, and the Spreckles family was big up in San Francisco as well. Um, you know, there's Spreckles Lake, and there's all kinds of things up here. But uh, it was on the Mission Beach Pier in San Diego from 19... It was from 1926 until it was moved to Balboa Park for the 1935-36 World Exposition. And then when that closed, all the amusement attractions were either sold off or just abandoned. And the carousel was sold to Ross Davis, who moved it to Griffith Park. It's the only Spillman carousel to have all jumping for a breast herd, and it's the only full-size Spillman um, carousel that is still operating today. Um, some of the horses were carved in New York, but um, otherwise, the the you know the, there's I don't see anything else that mentions. Another city, definitely nothing in, you know, in um, Detroit or Michigan. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry. I mean, if I ever come up, you know, if I ever come up with anything more, you know, I'll bring it up on on another Q and A. But that's about it. Okay. Okay. And anyway, and and uh, and I, I just thank you, Mike, for your Mike. For your well wishes and letting us know how much you enjoy connecting with Walt and our stories and how helpful you found them. I mean, it means a lot to us to hear that. It was very sweet. It was. It was. It it really made me realize how um, doing a show like this can touch a lot of people in ways we can't imagine. So thank you. For letting us know. Yeah. Well, I think that's it for this Q and A. What do you think, Craig? Yeah, I'd say uh, that was a good round, and uh, we will. It was. I mean, it's again as we said, we've never gotten three episodes out of it, and you know, there's been times where we could have pushed it, but uh, this was a lot of good stuff here, so I look forward to the next one. We don't have a date for it yet, but sooner than later. Yeah, 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 you, and you all really out outdid yourselves this time, so thank you for being a part of the show and sending in your questions. And um, if we didn't get to your question this time, hang on to it and submit it again, or submit different ones if you want. Or both. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now it's time to move on to other questions, and that's This Week in Disney History. Okay, Craig. Well, last week, as you know, I May 23rd disappeared, so I have it this week. So anyway, so that means we have one extra question this week. Okay, I'm ready for him. Okay. All right. So May 23rd, what attraction first soared above Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom on May 23rd, 2001? 
So I have a hint for you. Versions of this attraction would later open in 2002, Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris, and in 2011 at Tokyo Disney Sea. Okay, this I should be able to narrow it down since I've been to Walt Disney Studios, unless it was gone by the time I was there, but I don't. No, I, I think, think it was there. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, it's you said sore, so it has to be something that goes up in the air. Um, I'm going to say I don't know about its involvement in Tokyo. I can only speak on the two parks that I've been to, but I think uh, the magic carpets of Aladdin. You got it. Good. You got it. The magic carpets of Aladdin. Of course, this is based on the 1992 film Aladdin, and guests ride aboard one of 16 rugs surrounded by a giant genie lamp. And this is an adventure land. The attraction design is very similar to Dumbo the Flying Elephant. So, I always think that section, I mean, it's pretty, but it just doesn't fit. Yeah, I like, don't care for it. Yeah. Like when they redid, you know, in Disneyland, they, they redid the Tahitian Terrace to be, you know, it was Aladdin themed and it, it made no sense I don't, sitting there. See, for me, I don't even have necessarily a problem with the theme. I, I mean, I do have a problem with the bottleneck and yeah, our Adventureland is thematically a mess as it is but i think my bigger problem for it is just it's one of those spinning rides that you're not there's nothing to look at once you get to the top like you're looking at the entrance Mm -hmm. to tiki room you're looking at the line for for dole whips and you're looking at gift shops and you can see the jungle cruise way off in the distance you have a great view of swiss family treehouse but it's just not looking at anything you're just spinning in a random area yeah, at least Dumbo, uh, at least at Disneyland, you, you get a bird's eye view of Fantasyland. Exactly. So that's interesting. That's why I never cared for that merry-go-round at, at Pixar Pier now. Because it's off in a corner, sort of near the entrance to the restrooms and all that. And you don't see anything. It should be, you know, near the lagoon or whatever that thing is called the bay so that at least you're looking out at water and seeing you know more of pixar pier and things it shouldn't be off in a corner where you're looking at walls and stuff like that at least it's cuter now than it it was uh, before (laughs) yeah it is although i thought i like the theme of the lost sun with all the sea creatures so it's just that when you're on a when you're on something that goes around like that you should have something to look at i agree you know unless you unless you're reaching for a um a Uh, ring and then to throw it at a target like at santa cruz beach and boardwalk or something but anyway okay so very good may 24th okay here's a film one for you Hollywood Party, a musical film starring Jimmy Durante, directed by Roy Rowland and distributed by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, premiered on May 24, 1934. It featured 31 stars like Laurel and Hardy, The Three Stooges, George Gavatt, and a star from the Walt Disney Studio. Who was this Disney personality? I haven't seen it, but 
I'm going to assume that it was Mickey. Okay. And you are correct. We talked about this, and I don't remember why. That's it. Yeah, it's it's Mickey Mouse, and he introduced the Technicolor 7-minute cartoon sequence, The Hot Chocolate Soldiers. And that was created by the Walt Disney Studio. And this film will be generally released on June 1st. I've got to see if that film's available. Yeah, I I know I haven't seen it, but did we... Did we talk about this during our Mickey Mouse series? It, maybe we did. That, that's that would make sense. Yeah, that we either did. that or maybe they mentioned it at Destination D this past year, and offhand mm, since it, it was Mickey. Have. So, yeah, but I, 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 yeah. Okay. All right, May twenty fifth. The Mickey Mouse short, Mickey's Review, directed by Wilfred Jackson, was released on May 25, 1932. In this short, Minnie, Pluto, and Horace Horsecollar help Mickey put on a big show. What Disney character makes his debut in this film? Hmm. Huh. I... Just, I want to say this was uh, I think this was the first one for Goofy but it was before he was Goofy absolutely right and and before he looked the way he did now does yeah. now um, yeah Goofy appears as an audience member who annoyingly crunches on peanuts yep. he has this goofy laugh for the very first time but with the name do you know what his first name was it it's like it's not droopy dog that's a obviously different but no but you're really close oh i love droopy though from the the warner brothers yeah um, warner brothers it's it's something with you're close though you're very close it's it's another d word correct right Uh uh-huh yeah Uh yeah uh i it's not coming to me right now it's dippy dog Dippy Dog. And, and Dog is spelled D A W G. I knew that. His, <laughs> yeah, his name will officially become Goofy in March 1939 with the release of the film Goofy and Wilbur. <laughs> okay, May 26th. The second version of Epcot Center's Spaceship Earth reopened on May 26th, 1986, with a new narration a new finale song titled Tomorrow's Child, and a new sponsor, AT&T. Who was the new narrator for this version? That one is simple. That is Walter Cronkite. That's right. Legendary newsman Walter Cronkite. That's that's when we could trust our news folk. <laughs> yeah. it's also, if Walter was, said it, you knew it was true. Yeah. I <laughs> was literally thinking about it. I was like, you know, I, I knew that anyways, but it was like it feels it feels like it was just yesterday that we did our episodes on Spaceship Earth, but I think it was like two years ago at this point now. Maybe even longer. Was it that long ago? No. I think it I think it was we did those in early twenty eighteen. Did we really? Gosh. I was thinking it was twenty nineteen, but was it twenty I don't have a good sense of time. Well, Apparently, we figured out that I don't have a good sense of time either, so... (laughs) Well, no. Well, no. I'm not saying I'm right. 
because I'm always off. Like when Carol's alive, like let's say we had to figure out when we bought an appliance, let's say, and she'd say, when do you think we bought that? And I'd say, oh, I don't know, two, three years ago. And then she'd finally look it up, and it was like 10 years yeah. ago. <laughs> so I, I have no idea, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, May 27th, U.S. President Ronald Reagan and his wife visit Epcot Center on May 27th, 1985. Are you gone? Okay, May 27th. U.S. President Ronald Reagan and his wife visit Epcot Center on May 27th, 1985 for what would become a historic event in presidential and Disney theme park history. What was this event? I, I'm not quite sure, honestly. I I know we've talked about it, but it's not, it's not ringing in my brain right now. It was the president's second inaugural parade. The original outdoor parade in January had been canceled due to bad weather in Washington D.C., and an indoor mini parade had been hastily organized in the Capitol Center Sports Arena. So some 2,500 bandsmen from 16 states participated in the festivities at Epcot Center on this day, and the event made television news and newspaper headlines around the world. And the president was brought in by helicopter that landed behind the American Adventure Pavilion. And of course, back when Disneyland opened in 1955, Ronald Reagan, who was then an actor, took part in the televised opening of the park. So, okay, May 25th, or May 28th, I should say. May 28th, 1960, Walt Disney dedicated a new attraction in Frontierland and a new exhibit opened in Tomorrowland. What were the names of the attraction and the exhibit? A lot opened on this day. May 28th. It's yeah. interesting. Um, I mean, I, I right around that Memorial Day time frame. So I'm yeah, assuming that exactly. it's always been a big thing for, for Disney as far as time goes back. But, uh, huh. I'm... I'm gonna... Is it possible to get a hint... It's not there anymore, <laughs> Frontierland. <laughs> it is long gone. It probably covered more acreage than any other attraction. Okay, I have an idea of, uh, on that then. Until until Galaxy's Edge opened, if you consider that an attraction. Nah, well, that's a land. Not. Exactly. Yeah. So I okay. think the Frontierland, I'm going... Gonna just take a guess on it, but I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say Mine Train through Nature's Wonderland. That's right, exactly. That open in Frontierland, and what about the exhibit in Tomorrowland? Uh, the hint is: I wish I could go back in time with a bunch of money <laughs> and go to the shop that was attached to this exhibit. It's that 
hint. As much as you have me intrigued, it's not ringing any bells off the top of my head. It's it's the art of animation exhibit. Oh. So, so, Mind Changing Nature's Wonderland, of course, is an e-ticket attraction, and it's an improved version of the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train that had been there. Um, which had first opened in 1956. Um, the attraction now covers a very large portion of Frontierland and features over 200 audio-animatronic animals, plus themes and scenery from Walt Disney's popular True Life Adventure film. So on this day, Walt Disney christened the new scenery with some help from his grandchildren, Tammy, Joanna, and Chris Miller. Um, the Art of Animation opens adjacent to Art Corner, and this is where I would have liked to have gone to. A retail store in Tomorrowland selling postcards, flip books, artist prints, art supplies, animation kits, and original hand-painted animation cells. Um, the exhibit contained artwork and other items drawn from an international traveling display that had promoted the release of Sleeping Beauty. So, I would love to go back and get some of those original hand-painted animation oh. cells. Hey, you've got me hooked on that now. I don't, I don't think I remember hearing about that before, but, you know, stuff blends together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and see, and when I was a boy, when we went to the park, we really didn't go into the shops hmm. too much. So, anyway, okay, May 29th. A gag meeting for the second Mickey Mouse short is held at Walt Disney's house on May 29, 1928. At this meeting, Walt shares with his staff his groundbreaking idea for cartoons. What was Walt's idea? Well, for talking 1928, we know that's literally the start of it. And so just, I, I mean, naturally, I think if, if we're looking at, at the start, then we're starting with sound because that's what set Mickey Mouse apart once they, they added Ex sound. So. Exactly. They were at Walt Disney's house because, of course, um, Charles Mintz had already informed Walt that he was he had sold, of course, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit to Universal, and he had hired away almost all of his animators as a result. So Walt at the studio, they were fulfilling the contract for the final Oswald shorts, and Walt was secretly working at his home after hours with his loyal animators and Lillian and Edna Disney on the Mickey Mouse shorts. And so, um, yeah, so Walt told Wilfred Jackson and other members of his staff about his idea of producing a sound cartoon. So, very good. Okay, um, May 30th, this is the final one. May 30th, 1967 is the date preparation began on a Disney project. What was this project? Hmm. It was a big project. Okay. I, I would assume it has something to deal with the Florida project. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, site preparation began 
well, you guessed it. It was the Florida Project. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, site preparation began in Florida on the Walt Disney World Project. Um, it This first part, though, required swamp drainage, clearing of land, and removal of trees. And it'll take 1,584 days and $400 million to get to opening day. So you did really well this week. Yeah, I did a couple, couple educated guesses and a couple mm-hmm. no for certain. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pleased. But what I, if you if you have not listened to the Connecting with Walt episodes on this site preparation <laughs> for, for Walt Disney World, uh, it's go back and listen to them. It's astonishing what they had to do to get to what we have today. I am always so impressed when I go to Walt Disney World and think about what it took to build the Magic Kingdom and just the Magic Kingdom and what surrounds it and and the ride in, the drive in. I mean, yeah. amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's a good time. We probably won't have another another video episode for for a while here so it's mm-hmm. a good time to to plug uh, we know a lot of people have have found out about connecting with walt through through these uh these video episodes that we've done so uh, it, there's no better time than now to to go all the way back to the beginning you only have to catch up on yeah. 150 some episodes before you're all caught back up again and uh but those those original ones i mean those they laid the entire groundwork for the show like now now we are we're not i don't want to say all over the place with the content that we we put together with this uh, i think a lot of times we have a lot of a lot of fun uh episodes kind of like these ones where we just we let our you know we we really let the conversation flow and let our imaginations soar in some some circumstances but uh those those original episodes all the way through were truly like listening to audiobooks and with each one having a different chapter so uh it's it's really fascinating stuff that it's it still it still holds up i mean some of our banter is is timed because like someone pointed out to me on twitter that apparently i said on one of the first episodes that i was like my mind will be blown if donald trump is an animatronic inside the hall of presidents <laughs> and look what happened really? so uh so it, there is there is some timeliness to those old episodes but at mm-hmm. the same time uh that once we get into the content of each show it's that that stuff is timeless so yeah, people have pointed out some of our predictions came to pass, and I know I was being sarcastic at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, like um, the Beauty and the Beast sing-along in the French Pavilion, apparently at Epcot. Apparently I predicted that, but I was saying that as like as a sign that they've sunk to their lowest <laughs> cre- creative-wise, if they did that. And look at what's happening. There you go. <laughs> oh, well, so okay well thank you craig good job there with that thank you yeah well this this is the third and final installment of the spring q a that means next week um, unless something unforeseen happens we're going back to audio only for a while 
So uh, you see that Craig and I were in our, our Pixar mood today because, Craig, I like your, your Wally shirt. Yeah. I have my... Um, Finding Dory. My find, yeah, Finding Dory shirt on. And, uh, but this won't be the last of the video segments. It's just like we said early on that we have to... It, we'll do it. We'll have video segments when it serves whatever the content of the program is. Exactly. So... Anyway, but so who knows what what's coming next week? It'll be a surprise to all of us. But Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Diz Unplugged? Well, as always, you can find me on all the various shows that I'm on on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network. But then you can always find me on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. Michael, what about you? Well, uh, you can always send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Uh, for Disney content, uh, definitely choose the one that has the Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Legacy Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings and possible. Craig also always has a link uh, in our show notes to past episodes of the Disneyland um, archives that that have my um, episodes on there as well. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.